Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Scott Alford. He is one of the top online business mentors and advisors, and he also owns dozens of businesses that have collectively generated tens of millions of dollars. And this done in multiple niches, countries across the world, and so forth. In his new Investing with Scott newsletter, he gives you a behind-the-scenes look into acquiring, building, and scaling businesses based on his experience of helping hundreds of entrepreneurs scale all the way up to seven and eight figures. As an entrepreneur, since he was seven, and by the time he was 16, having a million-dollar business, while ending up a million in debt and now by 31 becoming a decamillionaire, he has a massive amount of insights, understandings, knowledge, and wisdom for scaling and building a business. You can now check what he's up to by going into investing.scottalford.com. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited today. We have a, a founder from Latin America. Uh, obviously, there's a lot going on there. And I think that we're going to be we're going to be learning and we're going to be enjoying this because he's traveled the world. He's done many different companies, done the full cycle. So I don't want to make you all wait any longer. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Gaston Irigoyen. Welcome to the show. Hey, Alejandro. Great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. So originally born in Argentina, but uh, you did travel quite a bit growing up. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, no, life was good. But as you said, I had... The opportunity to live in several countries. So uh, I was born in Argentina, but um, uh, you know, soon after we we moved uh, first to Switzerland and then to Peru because of my dad's job. Uh, so we spent uh, roughly five years living abroad uh, before coming back, and then all the way from like primary school till the end of uh, uni, I was uh, here in Argentina. Uh, so sort of you know uh, raised uh, here, educated here. And uh, yeah, soon after I started working at Google and then Google brought me to Europe, to Dublin more specifically. And then with time, as I became an entrepreneur, I did move to the US and then finally back to Argentina about six years ago. So uh, long story short, lived in, uh, five mar in five different countries, including Argentina and uh, covered, you know, kind of a little bit of the Western world. So let's say double click on that and expand a little bit on it. I know that when you were younger, you know, you, you were mentioning that your, your dad traveled quite a bit for work. So I guess question there is, 
what happened in Peru? Because when you guys were in Peru, you know, you were living there quite in an uncertain environment. And I'm sure that that gave you a lot of perspective in life. Yeah, 100%. Uh, so as I said, soon, soon after I was born, we moved to Switzerland first. And, you know, as ever, Switzerland has been one of the most uh, stable countries around the world. Uh, and, you know, it works very well and so on and so forth. But then the, the company that my dad was working for, a pharmaceutical company, appointed him to sort of lead the Latin American operation out of Peru. And, uh, you know, back in the 80s, Peru was going through some rough uh, times. And while there was a government, sort of a democratic government, there was also this movement called the Shining Path in English or Sendero Luminoso in Spanish, which was essentially like a communist uh, guerrilla movement. And uh, yeah, they were pretty rough. And uh, there's all sorts of uh, stories, you know, where they kidnapped executives from different companies that were sort of bringing work and income and sort of joy, if you want, uh, to people, which was on the opposite front of what uh, they thought was the right way forward. Uh, so that meant that we had to live in a gated community, but furthermore, we had to have like an armed person in the front door of our own house. Uh, there were many days where there was no electricity. I still remember those days and, you know, there was an alternative to electricity, which was well, not technically gas, but similar to gas. And so my, my, my family would have to cook the meals uh, with, with, you know, that sort of gas. And I still remember uh, the flavor and how different the, the, the food sort of tasted. And I remember not liking it at all. And uh, yeah, overall, it was like a difficult experience. We spent four years there for my mom. I think it was very, very hard uh, for my dad. It was very good professionally, but of course, a lot of uh, sort of, you know, tension and, and stress. And yeah, you know, I sort of grew up in, in that context. And even though it's hard to tell because I was very young, I think a lot of the sort of uh, resilience and, and the motivation to start a company and to do something for Latin America uh, is almost like the opposite of, uh, of what I lived in, in that experience. So in your case, I mean, going, I mean, you went to university there in, in Argentina and, and you did international relations, of course, out of all things. No, I mean, you were quite a citizen of the world already. But, but in your case, I mean, you decided to go to Google. I mean, you were one of the first employees there really in Latin America. I mean, we're talking about 2006. Uh, mm -hmm. And I mean, that that's quite, uh, you know, entrepreneurial too, because I mean, in, I know I'm, I'm originally from Spain. You know, as saying our audience knows, and I know for a fact that in those Spanish-speaking countries, especially back then, you know, it, it's quite risky to go to such a new company. I mean, it's either you go to a bank or you're a lawyer or a doctor. So I'm sure that for you, it's quite a risky bet too. No? Yeah, I think I think it was. Uh, it ended up being kind of the pretty much the only alternative that I had, uh, which of course I'm very grateful for, but. Essentially what happened, as you said, like I graduated from international relations back in 2006 and, you know, it was still like a, a, a very different world, even though some tech companies had emerged, you know, the, the most popular and sexy companies to work for were kind of CPG companies or, or the big consultancy companies. And I remember going through all those interview processes and back in the day, they would sort of, you know, start with like 300 kids and, and then sort of narrow, narrow them down to like five or six that actually got the job offers. And I remember like always making it to the final stages, but that for some reason I never sort of got the offers. And I always thought that it was related to the fact that I studied international relations. I went to a very good university. I had a very good sort of GPA or, or, um, you know, score overall, if you want. 
Um, but I always thought that I was sort of losing those jobs against the people who studied, you know, business or economics or sort of more traditional careers. And uh, at some point in time, uh, you know, Google showed up and they were setting shop and, and their first office in Latin America. And it was almost by coincidence that I ended up there and in tech, it, it, sort of in a nutshell, Google appreciated and valued all the things that all the other companies did not value. I mean, they valued that I had studied international relations. They valued that I had lived uh, abroad. Um, they valued that I had, you know, been like a, a pretty heavy skier and had worked worked abroad when I was younger. So uh, they essentially, you know, liked and appreciated from my uh, sort of story all the things that all the other companies were not sort of appreciating. And yeah, they made me an offer. And um, Google was a you know pretty known company at the at the day, at the time. It was kind of a pre uh, sorry post-IPO company already, like a year and a half or so after the IPO. And we were all using Google um, and some some other products, you know, like Gmail uh, and, and things like that. So I was actually very, very excited. And, you know, now that I look back almost 16 years later, um, I'm super, super grateful. I mean, my entire career has been in tech thanks to that. And, um, I, you know, I would choose it, you know, again, all, all the way. Now, let's talk about branching out you know, and uh, now going at it on your own. Let's talk about Guide Central. So how did the idea, you know, come to you and how did you go about executing? Because you did, you know, jump quite a bit. You know, you went then from Dublin to um, to New York. So so how did you go from ideation to incubation and to launch of the, of the company? Yeah, so I worked six years at Google, the first three in Latin America, building an operation for 17 Spanish-speaking markets. And then I moved to Dublin to, to Ireland to work with the YouTube partnerships team. And we were essentially trying to monetize YouTube for the first time. My job was actually to go around Europe and spot uh, the first YouTubers and make them sort of rich and famous. Um, you know, all these guys that are, uh, and, and gals that are very successful on YouTube and TikTok and, you know, all these, all these platforms. Uh, so it was a great experience. And at some point, um, you know, I made very good friends with, with uh, you know, this guy from, from Spain as well, same as you. He's now COO for Salesforce in in uh, Europe. Uh, you know, we still we're still very very close friends, and uh, this was back in 2010. Uh, and we were actually you know kind of in the middle of the or actually a few months before the World Cup, same as now, uh, but the South Africa Soccer World Cup. And um, we heard from a lot of executives, uh, you know, in California that were saying that the future was going to be mobile and that Google's business was going to be mobile. Uh, but at, at that point in time, uh, only the App Store uh, was there. And it, it had been around for about six to nine months, I think, maybe one year, and Google Play didn't even exist. So uh, Marco and I started to sort of you know, play with, um, the, with the idea of uh, building a mobile app for the World Cup just to you know, learn about mobile and to get sort of acquainted with what in theory was going to become you know, uh, sort of an everyday thing. And, um, and yeah, we, we built a small team while working at Google. We worked, you know, during the weekends and at, at a, uh, during the night uh, to get this sort of uh, mobile app up and running. And, and so we did. And about a month before the World Cup was born, uh, was sort of started and, and kicked off uh, when people are essentially uh, browsing apps to, to follow the World Cup, our app was there and it, it was, you know, very, very successful. It ended up being like the fifth top top five sort of 
um, app in, in the App Store. And so that was like a, an amazing experience for us. We ended up selling that sort of application. It wasn't even a company uh, to Kia Motors, which was uh, the world's official sponsors of the World Cup. And so that gave us a lot of confidence around, you know, building mobile apps and, and continuing to build that uh, team that we have built. And so the following year, with that sort of momentum, plus some insights that I had discovered while working at YouTube, I decided to start this company called Guide Central, which in today's terms is kind of a combination of Pinterest and YouTube, allowing tier two content creators to monetize uh, their content through mobile. So tell us then, expand a little bit more on that business model. You know, what were you guys, you know, at Guide Central doing and how were you guys making money? Yeah, so what I I noticed uh, at YouTube is that there were like this, let's say, tier one sort of segment of YouTubers that were very, very successful, which continues to be true today. And they were making like millions of dollars a year. But then there was like a sort of a tier two or second segment of content creators that had a lot of skill. They were spending a lot of time uh, trying hard to produce content, but they were not being very successful. So I thought it was a good idea to create a mobile first and mobile only, actually, um, global sort of application for them as an alternative to YouTube and a place where they could create content and be more successful or even complement uh, what they were doing on, on YouTube. The format was obviously different. It was 100% mobile. It was not limited to video. And so the business model was essentially to, um, to do some sort of rev share similar to what YouTube did. Um, with their content. Uh, we didn't show ads, but we had like, um, you know, product placements. So that was slightly different. But yeah, that, that was it. It was like a twist to how YouTube operates. And I mentioned Pinterest because it was uh, a very sort of uh, uh, female-driven community. 90% of our users were women and they would operate and create content in like the top five or six verticals that you would see on, on Pinterest. So home decor, uh, crafts, fashion and beauty, food and drinks, and, and those kind of things. And how did you guys go about capitalizing the business? Back in 2011, 2012, it was hard to raise money. The rounds were way, way smaller than now. I mean, we did uh, raise uh, two rounds, but you know, in today's terms, were you know very small rounds. I think all in all, we probably raised about $2 million. Uh, it was, uh, I think, a 500K seed round, and then uh, or pre-seed round and then 1.5 million. Uh, so we were never like a super capitalized uh, business. Um, it was hard to do it from Europe. And then uh, when we moved to the US, um, yeah, it wasn't like, it wasn't super easy either. So, you know, it was, it, was a, it was sort of a fine business. It was growing well. It wasn't monetizing all that, you know, greatly. So at some point we, you know, we realized that uh, the roof wasn't too far away. So we continued to grow the business, but, but it was clear that it was not going to be like a rocket ship. Now for you guys, you know, it ended up uh, being a successful outcome. You know, you guys uh, had an exit, you know, an exit is always an exit. Now, one thing that is interesting here is that you guys also had a few failed attempts at the exit. So yep. tell us about what happened during those failed attempts, because many, many times, you know, I've seen that an attempt at, you know, engaging in an acquisition and then all of a sudden things falling apart, you know, can be lethal to the business. I mean, many companies die, you know, in, in, in that process of trying to turn things around because of the resources and the time that they spent and the lack of runway, whatever that is. But in your guys' case, you know, you were able to get it to the finish line with a successful uh, acquisition uh, a process. So 
what happened during the failed attempts and why, you know, the last time at it, you know, it, it worked out. We actually went through like three processes uh, and only the fourth time it was uh, sort of completed. And yeah, you have some kind of, you know, now I laugh at those stories, but they were really, really hard and tough at the time. So the first time I remember doing like a two to three week uh, trip to, uh, to Silicon Valley, it was a very good trip. And I met the founder and CEO of a company in the space. And so he invited me to the office. And uh, after about a, an hour, uh, an hour's chat, he said, hey, you know, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to explore the, the opportunity to acquire your business because I think it would be sort of complementary to what we do. And I was like, hey, sure, you know, let's explore it and we'll see what happens. And then about a month later, um, you know, he asks me to come to New York. I was living in Dublin at the time. So I, I sort of, I did the trip and uh, I landed um, at GFK and then went straight to the hotel uh, to meet with him in what, you know, was supposed to be like the sort of uh, negotiating the terms kind of meeting. And uh, I arrived there and he says, hey, you know, unfortunately, like I'm stepping down as CEO, someone else is coming, the board has appointed someone else. So we'll have to pause this conversation for now. Uh, and I was like, okay, you know, I sort of understand by why would you ask me to come all the way to New York to give me <laughs> just this piece of news, you know? So it was hard, you know, I was left alone there in New York, kind of looking around and saying like, you know, what's, you know, what's, what's the deal here? And, 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 and I, it was, it was sort of, you know, hard, uh, because I was sort of excited with the opportunity, but I was also kind of frustrated because as you said, like, even though it's only like a trip or so, uh, plus my time, I thought was, I don't know, I just didn't like the idea that he would ask me uh, over to New York just to say no, you know, he could have sent an email or speak on the phone or something like that. So I remember that was like a very hard week for me. Second time around, I was sort of negotiating with a company based in Los Angeles. Uh, they were used to call Maker Media. I'm not sure if they are still around. Uh, they, they, they were a publicly uh, listed company and they then afterwards, they were acquired by a, by a private equity firm. So I don't know how they're called now. Uh, but anyways, they were another big, big player in the space. And, and um, you know, we were sort of going far along the process. And at some point, they asked me to come to LA. And so I did, again, all the way from, from, from Dublin. And I remember like doing the trip. And then the previous night, uh, you know, working very hard on, on the last slides of the presentation. And I was meeting their entire entire sort of leadership team and board members. And before going to bed, uh, just out of curiosity, I opened, I think, Yahoo Finance uh, to look at their uh, how the stock was doing. And they had announced results that very same afternoon. And the stock was down like 30% based on, you know, very poor results. And so the following morning, our meeting was at 9 a.m. in the morning. And so as you can imagine, like, their faces were terrible and they were all in a very, very bad mood because obviously the company wasn't doing any well. And uh, yeah, that was kind of the second frustrated attempt. You know, there was, <laughs> even though like they didn't know that that was going to happen, like I had like horrible, horrible timing. And uh, yeah, that second attempt was gone. Third time around, the, the, the new CEO from the first company that I mentioned, uh, also engages in a conversation and uh, we start doing sort of all the due diligence process. And then at some point we had a meeting with our CTO and some sort of technical advisor that they had. 
and and the technical advisor on the other side, he was like very, very rude with my CTO who didn't speak English very, very fluently. He was relatively young and, you know, he could not manage and handle that meeting. Uh, and most importantly, he became a little bit emotional because the person on the other side was be being very, very harsh, obviously on purpose as part of, you know, uh, the process. And I think he kind of lost a little bit of composure and, and that was it. So that was kind of the third attempt. Uh, and then finally, the fourth time around with uh, another company called WikiHow uh, out of uh, Palo Alto, uh, then it, it did happen. Uh, so long story short, uh, you know, some scars there in those in those processes and, and those experiences. Uh, now, nowadays, I look at back, look back at them, I kind of laugh and, uh, you know, I, I think they were very, very good learning experiences. And yeah, as you said, you know, it was uh, it was good outcome in the end. Uh, sort of the whole process started organically because at first we were not thinking about selling the business, but then at some point with so many uh, so sort of attempts and, and, and failed attempts, you kind of change your mind a little bit and you can kind of, you know, put yourself in the mood of selling. And so finally it did happen. So I guess from all these different attempts, what was your biggest lesson on acquisitions? Yeah, I think the biggest lesson is you need to be very focused on building the best possible business and um, and never sort of optimizing for, you know, an exit. Because at some point with so many attempts, you know, you start sort of doing some, or at least I did back in the day, some some sort of concessions or you try to gear the, the business a little bit, uh, you know, to better fit one company or the other company. And I think that was kind of the biggest mistake and the biggest learning. I mean, you do have, you have to do what you have to do and then... If there's a buyer and the buyer is interested, then they will acquire you in the terms uh, or, or they will acquire the business that you have built because it's the best possible business. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's one of the many learnings um, alongside, of course, you know, having a, a you know, a, a very, a very solid executive team that can handle any sort of conversation in in at least the, the main languages, uh, which seems basic, but there's a lot of very good companies that don't necessarily have that capability. And so if you're going through a technical due diligence process and your CTO is absolutely great, but he doesn't speak English, then, you know, that becomes a very big liability. So those kind of things, you know. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Unfortunately, in life, you know, there's not a user manual. You don't know what works for you, what's normal, uh, when you're feeling stuck, navigating some of the changes that you may be experiencing, like maybe you're looking at giving your notice and becoming an entrepreneur, whatever that is, you know, having a therapist, you know, can really be helpful. And they're trained to help you in figuring out what's causing those challenging emotions. And also you, you get to learn, you know, with coping skills. I mean, in my case, for example, wherever I felt stuck or wherever I needed someone to coach me through it. I literally, you know, like had someone there, you know, helping me and learning with coping skills, self-empowerment, dealing with trauma, whatever that was. So as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime and it couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapies. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash dealmakers. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash dealmakers. 
This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing businesses. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. Obviously, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. You know, in your case, after this transaction, it took you quite a while, you know, to go at it again. And we're going to talk about it, you know, like in just a bit with uh, Pomelo. But, you know, you had a, a, a few, you know, initiatives that you were part of. One, as a CMO, you know, of uh, of this company called Restorando. And then the next one, you know, was with a neobank called Naranja X. So why did you go at it with those initiatives instead of, you know, just going, you know, through the nature path, the natural path, which is just starting another company? Listen, like I always thought I was continuing to, to be an entrepreneur in many ways. Yes, I was technically not the founder in those two experiences. But I felt like I was an entrepreneur, and that, that to me was the most important thing. But but just to sort of answer your question in more detail, uh, after selling Guide Central uh, and taking a little bit of time off, uh, we moved back from New York to Argentina. And the reality is that we had been living abroad for seven years, and I didn't really have much context uh, about what was going on in LATAM. I didn't have a team in LATAM, and I didn't have an idea for LATAM. So it wasn't the right call to start something if I didn't have a team or an idea or context. And so I thought, okay, possibly the, like the best alternative is to continue to feel that I'm starting something or doing something or just like, you know, feeling like I'm an entrepreneur, but in, in sort of a different context. And that's why, you know, I joined Restaurando. Restaurando was maybe like three or four years old. It was like a post series B company. I joined us uh, CMO and then also took on the on the sales and partnerships uh, road. So I was effectively leading the entire marketplace um, in eight markets. I was part of the leadership team, and you know our overall feeling was that my overall feeling was that I was almost like a like a founder, and I was at the end of the day building something meaningful. So it felt to me like you know pretty similar to be honest, and that was a great experience. I mean we. Uh, continued to build that company. At some point, we reached uh, break even, and then we sold to TripAdvisor. So for us, out of Latam, having having sold that company to a publicly listed company and and you know a big name such as TripAdvisor, and going through all the DD process and showing that you know uh, we can build like a, a company with global standards uh, out of Latam was an amazing experience. And um, yeah, that was it. And then with Naranja X. Uh, essentially, you know, I was CEO from the first day. Naranja X is a spin-off of the largest financial institution in Argentina, also a listed company. And they were, uh, they, they wanted to build a neobank. They already had a bank and they had an insurance company and they had a credit card company and they had a, uh, an investment company and they wanted to build a neobank and they sort of hired me or invited me to come and build it. And so, yeah, I was not founder from the from the first day, or technically not founder, as you know, the, the group was kind of the main shareholder. 
Uh, but I did have my shares. And most importantly, I was kind of CEO from the first day. And so I felt like a founder, right? And yeah, in two years, we, you know, we built that Neobank. Uh, we launched a wallet, a mobile POS business. We invested $50 million. We built a team of 280 people. Uh, we were granted a banking license. And that company now has sort of merged with another sister company. And it has like 5 million customers and 2,500 people. So uh, super proud of that experience. And in fact, that experience was my first experience in fintech. And uh, Naranja X in many ways, uh, or actually in all ways, led to the creation of Pomelo because uh, Pomelo is, is an answer to our biggest uh, sort of friction and, and pain point while building Naranja X. So then let's talk about uh, Pomelo. Uh, how does the idea of Pomelo come to you? And why, you know, after all these years, you know, you think it's time to do it again? Uh, as I said, the idea came out of our own frustration. When I look back and reflect on those uh, two years building the Neobank, 80% of our investment, 80% of our team, 80% of our headaches are, of our time was sort of related to uh, infrastructure and having to deal with the local incumbent infrastructure in Argentina, which is also true for the rest of Latin America. Because if you look at one of my co-founders' uh, experience, he not only worked with me building the Neobank, but before that, he was at a, at a very successful company called uh, Mercado Libre. He, he was one of the first you know, employees for Mercado Pago, which is their fintech sort of offering. And he spent 12 years there doing pretty much the same that we did at Naranja X, but for many, many countries throughout Latin America. So he had to go through the process of scaling a very successful uh, Latin American fintech. And effectively, it took them about a year and a half or two to launch in any other given market. So uh, all in all, you look at that company now and they are present in, I don't know, six, seven, eight markets, and it took them about 10 years to do so. So he went through the same pain, uh, but at scale, right? So it was very, very clear to us that we had to, we had a big opportunity at building a new infrastructure for Latin America, one that is good for the 21st century, one that is good for uh, all the very, very successful and very powerful uh, fintechs and crypto companies and even embedded finance players that are being created and are growing throughout the region, um, which uh, in reality had to build whatever they built on top of uh, incumbent infrastructure uh, in the different markets. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we believe this is part of like a second wave of uh, sort of fintech in, in Latin America, the first one being B2C and this one being B2B. And yeah, the opportunity is massive and, and uh, we're all motivated about doing something for our continent and for the, you know, the places that we are from. As you know, financial services are structural to the development of any country, any society, same as education, same as uh, healthcare. And in that regard, Latin America is way behind uh, you know, Europe or the US or even some, some parts of Asia like you know, uh, you know, China or Japan. And so we believe that uh, by fixing that and by improving that, there will be like much better uh, financial services for the people. And we should not forget that Latin America is a region with 650 million people with two times the GDP of India, but where still 300 million people have no access to digital financial services. And we are living in markets with massive inflation, we're not talking about like 10% as in the US or the UK, we're talking about like 50, 60, 70%, which means that people lose money every single day. So it's hard to get a job and it's even harder to actually have some sort of disposable income after the, the full month uh, you know, goes, goes by. So um, yeah, that really motivates us. And, and you know, we thought that was sort of a big enough uh, sort of opportunity to dedicate our time to, to that. 
So what ended up being then the business model of Pomelo? So as an infrastructure company, uh, we monetize, it's kind of a hybrid model between SaaS and transactional. Uh, so just to be clear, we started this sort of infrastructure play with card issuing processing. So essentially allowing companies of all sorts, not only fintechs, but also crypto companies and, and embedded finance companies uh, launch cards. So we do Visa and MasterCard, we do physical and virtual cards. Um, we allow them to, to issue uh, debit, credit, prepaid, corporate cards, crypto cards. Uh, so cards have been sort of the wedge in for us. And, uh, and the reason for that is that um, cards are sort of the number one instrument that fintechs are using to bring more and better financial services to people in Latin America. We have around a billion cards and a trillion dollars being transacted through cards in LATAM. So uh, we thought that was like a very, very clear path because uh, it's hard to launch a card in any given market. It took us about 15 months at Naranja X to do so. Uh, but it's even harder if you want to scale that card to other markets because of local regulation, local nuances in the product structure, uh, or even what the market and the users need. So we started with that. Uh, and so our model is that essentially we charge like a minimum monthly fee or a yearly contract broken down into, into monthly sort of uh, uh, bills or invoices. Uh, so that's sort of the SaaS piece. And then when companies gain volume and go past beyond that sort of threshold, they pay as, as they grow, they pay as they consume. So that's more of a transactional model. So um, that's that, that's a model. It's a very noble model because it's very aligned with the P&Ls of our customers. We allow our customers to uh, not only improve their value prop, but also make money and generate revenue through uh, the card issuance. Uh, and then we take a percentage or a cut or a take rate on uh, whatever they make. So they, they always uh, earn more revenue than what we uh, earn. Uh, and at the same time, they have full visibility and they can sort of predict very well what their cost will be. Um, so we're very, very well aligned, which is not uh, how the industry has uh, historically worked here in Latin America. Now, you guys have raised quite a bit of money. How much capital have you guys raised to date? Yeah, we have raised uh, $60 million in less than 20 months. We're 20 months old. Uh, so we raised a seed round when we had absolutely nothing. We were just like three founders on our deck. Uh, well, I guess we had our experience uh, and then a very clear uh, thesis, uh, thesis. But uh, yeah, we, we hadn't written a single line of code. So we raised $10 million, um, uh, as a seed round, which... Yeah, it was almost like a pre-seed, but let's call it a seed. And then four or five months later, we raised our Series A. And interestingly, we were still pre, uh, pre-product and pre-revenue. Uh, of course, we were very lucky timing-wise because uh, this Series A was in October last year at the peak of the bull market. But we managed to raise our valuation like by seven times and raised another $36 million. Uh, And then... About three or four months ago, we raised another 15 million. So it was like a Series A extension, which sort of which sort of packaged our Series A at 50 million. But inter- interestingly, we we were also able to bump the valuation by 50 percent. So yeah, it's been sort of an upwards uh, trajectory, and uh, yeah, the company is very very well capitalized. Of course, we benefited from our own experience and from very good market conditions. But even when the market conditions got significantly worse. We continue to see all the support from our great investors plus interest from outsiders. And so that means that we, you know, we, we, 
been able to to yeah build a, a war chest for for the years to come and so we have very good runway and and a very clear path to profitability and the business is growing very nicely so uh yeah pretty proud of our sort of uh, fundraising history and and why racing in such a small time frames in between you know one round and the other because typically you know, companies would leave 18 to 24 months in between financing cycles. So why do you guys reduce it to 20 months to, to really raise all that money? Yeah, I think I think that was that was something that we did well. Uh, we we were able to sort of to read what was going on with a lot of clarity. And we also have great and great investors that advised us very, very well. So if I think of, you know, going from the seed round to the Series A, the Series A being like, as I said, I think five months or so after the seed round, it was it was really preempted. So, you know, uh, Tiger came along and they wanted to lead our Series A. And so, as I said before, when we looked at it, we were still kind of the same company. We were still, um, you know, pre-product and pre-revenue. The team had grown and we had incorporated some amazing talent, which I think is something that the market has always recognized us. Um, but the valuation was going up and, and the brand was there and, uh, we sort of understood that it was, you know, a very, very good and bullish, uh, sort of, um, time and we decided to take it. It, it was in all honesty against, uh, sort of our, um, you know, projections, because as, as, as you said, we were, we were expecting to raise our, our series A at least a year later, but it simply sort of happened. And I think we had the ability to read the situation very well and, and uh, take advantage of the opportunity. And then if I think of our extension, which was uh, three to four months ago, so yet again, maybe like nine months after the Series A, I think was a completely different reason. The market has changed, uh, had changed dramatically. And it was very clear that it was going to, and it's still very clear that it's going to be very hard to raise uh, in the in the years to come. And, and even more so uh, as a Latin American company, because as funds sort of reverse to the mean and um, you know, sort of go back to their core markets. There's going to be less capital available. Arguably, you know, more capital available for the great companies, but less capital available overall. And uh, we thought that by securing the additional 15 million, then you know that would put us in a very very good position because we have we would have more runway and and uh, you know could continue to execute. Uh, with peace of mind. And that's exactly what we're doing. And yet again, I think that was the right call. So um, yeah, it was a combination of, you know, things that happened externally and, and also our ability to not, not only raise, but also to kind of read in between lines and better understand what the conditions were and, and also follow the advice of some of the great investors that we have. Now, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Pomelo is fully realized, what does that world look like? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, a company of this nature will take, you know, uh, two to three decades to to mature. Um, if, if we think about it, like, you know, the current financial infrastructure in financial services infrastructure in Latin America was built, you know, three to four decades ago. And, uh, and um, uh, you know, it's definitely not prepared for uh, today's world uh, with the difference that, that today's world sort of accelerates and changes at a much, much uh, you know, higher pace than, than it did in the past. And we live in a continent that not only has many, many different countries, but has uh, you know, uh, different regulation and different market needs and different products. And uh, there's a lot more complexities now because on top of the sort of the, the card rails that we are used to, we now have 
sort of bank uh, bank driven or bank owned technologies like Pix in Brazil uh, that it's sort of being exported to many other countries or you know uh, transfers 3.0 as they are called in Argentina which operate with QR codes so that's like a very clear emerging second rail. Uh, driven by the central banks and their own technology. And then there's, of course, crypto. And then there's, of course, cash, which, uh, believe it or not, remains like, like a very, very significant rail, even though not electronic rail, of course, but, but it's still a rail. And so all these complexities uh, also, also mean that whoever you know, is going to build like a truly regional and new generation infrastructure has to serve multiple use cases, not only sort of on the issuing side, but also on the acquiring side, not only for users, but also for merchants. And um, yeah, that will take a long time. To answer your question, I think, I mean, hopefully we never get to the stage where we feel, you know, uh, comfortable enough with what has been done because it's ever changing. But uh, to the extent that we can look at this and say, hey, you know, all these legacy systems that were built in the 20th uh, century do not exist anymore, and even the banks are using like a new generation infrastructure, then uh, that, would have, that would mean that we had really, you know, made a step change for, for the region. And, and, and sort of that step changes and becoming the new normal and the new default, I think that would, that would in many ways uh, mean success. Now, in your case, I mean, you, you, now you've, you've been at it for a while. So if you had the opportunity of going back in time and maybe having a chat with that younger Gaston, that younger Gaston that was, you know, perhaps an employee at Google and thinking about like what would be a world, a future where, you know, you would bring your own solution to life. I mean, if you were able to have a chat with your younger self and giving that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, I mean, I would give uh, the younger Gaston the, the very same piece of advice that I gave the older Gaston because uh, all the learnings that uh, that I had sort of incorporated throughout the years are the ones that I tried to uh, use uh, before starting the, this business. But if I have to put it down like in one specific example, uh, I think the first time when I, when I left Google um, to start my first business, Guide Central, you know, I, I was very impulsive, right? Like I had this good experience doing the World Cup application and I had a little bit of a team and then I had some insights from YouTube. And I thought, you know, all those pieces independently were sort of good enough to uh, articulate something and, and, and go for it. And I pretty much, you know, resigned one Friday and then uh, went to Ikea uh, during the weekend, bought a desk, and then on Monday I started. And that's when I had to start uh, effectively doing a lot of the either research or, you know, structuring the idea in better ways and looking for people and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, that was a mistake and I should have, you know, waited a lot more or packaged that or bundled that or they risked the idea a lot more before even started, right? Which is exactly what we did this time around. After leaving Naranja X, uh, you know, uh, in the summer, going from 29, uh, sorry, 2020 to 2021, uh, summer here in, in Latin America in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, you know, I took some time out, but I, then I also took those two to three months to uh, really articulate the idea. So I sat down with my co-founders. We discussed whether we were the right co-founders or not, what our responsibilities would be, what our roles would be. We actually discussed like three different ideas. Then we decided that this one was the, the best one, at least in our minds. And then we started sort of a de-risking process on the one hand, but also like a validate, validation process on the other hand. And that took, as I said, between two or three months before we had like the confidence level that we were the right team with the right idea at the right time to go for it. And 
you know, that proved to be right. So you could, you know, while the younger guest would have thought, would have thought, hey, hey, man, you're losing time because you're losing two or three very valuable months. Uh, the older Gaston said, hey, no, I mean, that's actually really a big asset. And that's actually a big de-risker. And that proved to be right because uh, many of the good things that happened to us during this year and a half or so are a product or a byproduct of uh, all that process and making sure that we started uh, on the right on the right direction. I love it. So Gaston, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, LinkedIn, I'd say. I'm a little bit active on LinkedIn these days. So just my name and last name, Gaston, and then my last name is I-R-I-G-O-Y-E-N. Yeah, I'm. that's the number one place where, where people can find me. And yeah, it'd be great to connect with your audience. I'm sure there's a lot of very interesting people out there. Amazing. Well, Gaston, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Of course. Thanks, Alejandro. It was great fun. See you next time. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.